Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel, and I'm joined by Eminence, Bill Werner, Brent Palm, and Bloy Solson. We're going to delve into what's happening in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the number of family caregivers across Minnesota continues to rise. March is colon cancer screening month. Minnesota exports reached a record high in 2022, caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's disease, but first. Hundreds at the National Guard Armory just down the street from the state capitol as Governor Tim Walz signed into law a bill allowing undocumented immigrants to obtain a driver's license in Minnesota. Eminence Bill Werner is here with that story and the other big ones this week at the state capitol. Tasha, it was another in a series of high-profile bills that the governor has put pen to in a legislative session that started in high gear and took off from there. Treating each individual with dignity makes all of us safer and makes our state even stronger. Bill co-sponsor State Representative Maria Perez-Vega from St. Paul's West Side said, I've been on the phone all morning with so many of my friends who still can't believe that on October 1st they get to go and get their license. Why are we giving the identical license that we as legal citizens have to people who are here illegally. Faribault Senator John Jasinski, Republicans warned in Florida debate it opens the door to all kinds of abuse, even terrorists getting Minnesota IDs. But Amelia Gonzalez Avalos with Unidos Minnesota said just before the governor signed the bill. Dear Minnesotans, we already know you trust us. We cultivate and prepare your food. We take care of your children. We clean your spaces and build your homes. You can rest assured. We won't take this opportunity for granted. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison announced this week he is opening a civil investigation of Kia and Hyundai, prompted by a huge increase of thefts, particularly in the Twin Cities area. The Attorney General says many Kias and Hyundais do not have industry standard anti-theft technologies. As a friend asked him, Is it too much to ask to have a car that's not easily broken into and stolen, a car that actually locks? I think that's something you could expect. Officials say after a TikTok challenge on social media, young people saw how easy it is to break into Kia and Hyundai vehicles because they don't have immobilizers. Bills in both the Minnesota House and Senate would require automakers to provide anti-theft devices free of charge on any vehicle 2013 or later that does not have that technology. House Republican Minority Leader Lisa Damoth says about that approach. It seems that our Democrat colleagues want to go after car manufacturers. But Republicans actually do want to go after the criminals. And the Republican minorities in the Minnesota House and Senate unveiled their joint anti-crime package this week. It includes increased penalties for carjacking, for fleeing police in a motor vehicle, and for possessing or distributing fentanyl. Sentences would increase for violent offenders with two or more convictions under a measure authored by Albertville Representative Walter Hudson. The third time you've done it, you've already been caught twice. You've already been through trials twice, and you've been convicted twice. So you're clearly not learning your lesson. 
It was an unusual and unusually illuminating hearing on the proposed Fairview-Sanford merger this week in the Minnesota Senate. It began with two former governors offering their advice. Democrat Mark Dayton telling lawmakers the transfer of the U of M's Academic Health Center to Fairview's control in the late 1990s was what he termed a grievous mistake which must be rectified. Hopefully the statements by the principals constitute firm commitments to transfer the university's medical assets back from Fairview. If not, a proposed merger between Fairview and Sanford should be prohibited. Former Governor Tim Pawlenty, a Republican, told lawmakers if the medical assets on the Minneapolis campus were to be transferred back from Fairview to the University of Minnesota's control. It also then opens up the question and the opportunity, and it can be exciting, is what happens next? And so if you're an academic health center with cost overburdens for teaching and research, you need uh, money and you need uh, clinical partners beyond just the geographic footprint of the university's campus that are going to work with you and ultimately help send you patients and pay their bills. And so that might be Fairview and Sanford, might be others or some combination. Former Governor Pawlenty's comment, whether intentionally or otherwise, set up a public exchange of overtures between the University of Minnesota and Sanford Health. As former Governor Dayton alluded to, Fairview has offered to sell the teaching hospitals on the Minneapolis campus back to the U of M, even as Sanford CEO Bill Gasson told lawmakers at this week's hearing. Those are not assets that either of us would look at and say, goodness, we hope to get rid of those assets because, gosh, we just, you know, we don't need them. That all being stated, it's in the spirit of partnership and to be a true partner to the state of Minnesota that we would step aside. Meanwhile, U of M senior finance VP Myron Franz told lawmakers the Minneapolis campus buildings need to be transferred to the university as part of a negotiated strategic partnership with a merged Sanford and Fairview. Because a university cannot survive on those four facilities on their own. We need to have a community hospital system where we have patients, referrals, recreating the academic health system that's under the control of the university alongside of a reinvigorated Fairview with the Sanford merger is a potentially great agreement to make. Those comments apparently raised eyebrows, and Anoka Senator Jim Abler asked Fran's colleague, U of M Medical School Dean Jacob Toller, for confirmation. So it's not going to be a divorce where they move out and take all their stuff, <laughs> and you find somebody new to come in, like Alina or somebody else, but it seems like it's in your interest and Fairview's interest that you maintain a working relationship. Can you say if I'm right about that? Dr. Toller. Uh, Madam Chair, uh, Senator, you are absolutely right about that. And this week? There being 128 ayes and zero nays, the bill is passed and its title agreed to. The Minnesota House, before going home for the weekend, passed a bill to ensure Native American tribes can intercede if Indian children are being placed in non-native foster homes. The bill's backers want protections in state law if the U.S. Supreme Court, as feared, overturns current federal regulations. They point to past abuses at Indian boarding schools from the 17th all the way into the 20th century. Duluth Democrat Alicia Kozlowski saying tribal elders told their stories last summer. In Fond du Lac, in my community, um, they were actually out on a warm summer day playing by a train track. Who, anybody done that, right? But this time, they were actually lured onto a train with the prospects of candy and food, and then snatched up and taken and sent along to boarding schools. Roseville Democrat Jamie Becker-Finn read from an April 1952 letter from a Catholic institution to a white couple. Yours is the first invitation that was ever extended to one of our papooses to come and spend the vacation somewhere. 
We have a few little boys and girls who have no one at all interested whether they live or die or come and go. It's probably unlikely that what occurred at Indian boarding schools would ever be allowed to happen again. But the bill's backers point out that the effects on Native culture are still felt today. And Chief House Sponsor Moorhead Democrat Heather Keeler notes that 16 times as many Native children are removed from their homes as their white counterparts. She says the goal is... Keeping our kids together with the people who want to love them the best. Tasha. Thanks, Bill. It's time for a quick break. More Minnesota Matters after this. Wake up and text. Text and eat. Mm-mm. Text and catch the bus. Text and miss your stop. Wait, 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 wait. Text and be late to work. Sorry, I'm late. Text and work. Text and pretend to work. Text and act surprised when someone calls you out for not working. Who, me? Text and meet up with a friend you haven't seen in forever. Hi. Oh, hey. Text and complain that they're on their phone the whole time. Text and listen to them complain that you're on your phone the whole time. Ugh. Text and whatever. But when you get behind the wheel, give your phone to a passenger. Put it in the glove box. Just don't text and drive. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A public service announcement brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radolf. Health officials are highlighting the importance of colon cancer screenings this month. MNN's Brent Palm talks with Dr. Andrew Storm from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, who says testing and early detection can be a lifesaver. First off, I guess the recommendation used to be, I think, to get checked at 50 and that's gone up. Tell me a little bit about who, where and why should get screened for this. So it's March, which is colorectal cancer awareness month. And that's really the time when we can all look at our family, friends and loved ones and say, hey, if you're eligible for screening, is this something you've done? The reason that's important is that colorectal cancer is, you know, one of the few cancers which is preventable for most people by having a screening exam. And there are various modalities available for screening. Fortunately, um, one of the good things to come out of the Affordable Care Act was that it requires private insurers and Medicare to cover the costs of colorectal cancer screening for all patients. And so through, again, various different modalities, colonoscopy is my first choice, but, you know, there are also some stool tests and um, CT or computed tomography radiology tests to screen for colon cancer or large colon polyps, which turn into colon cancer. These different modalities are available to people uh, starting at the age now of 45. And that recommendation was because we've seen over time the older population who generally was getting colon cancer, generally because of that risk of tobacco smoking, um, has dropped over time. America is smoking less, which is a great thing. But at the same time, now we're seeing this concerning trend of younger people developing advanced colon cancers. And so because of that, the U.S. Preventative Task Force has made a recommendation, and now a lot of societies have joined them in this recommendation for saying, look, people aged 45 to 50 are the same risk now uh, for developing colon cancer as that age population 50 to 55. So if we're covering this for people age 50 to 55, we should also be covering this for people age 45 to 50. 
And that's what led to recommendation changing in the past two years to include all of us who are age 45 to 50 in that screening recommendation. Okay, yeah, I was reading some uh, some stats here that said uh, in the U.S., one in five new cases, as you mentioned, are among those in their early 50s or younger. So things are changing a bit. Yeah, the younger age population is the fastest growing group of people developing colon cancer. So it's colon cancer is developing in that younger population faster than any other group. And that's concerning. Hey, you mentioned smoking and colon cancer in the same breath. Did you tie them together? That's right. Yeah. Smoking is going to be probably the leading cause or leading risk factor. Uh, Specifically, smoking tobacco is going to be that risk factor for developing colon cancer. There are some other conditions associated with colon cancer. Certainly, the American diet being richer in red meats, lower in fiber. Also, uh, obesity probably tie into uh, uh, the risk for colon cancer. Wow. Interesting. I, I thought of all the other things you mentioned about, you know, digestion and eating right, but I never, uh, never heard the, uh, the tie with smoking. Some of the numbers I see, um, men slightly more likely than women to be diagnosed and, um, African-Americans higher than other races. That's right. And there's also a difference in, uh, who's going to develop a deadly colon cancer. So it's interesting. These younger people who are developing colon cancer, these younger people tend to develop a very advanced stage cancer, which is much harder to treat. That's why, you know, when people say, well, I'm going to try and wait a few years until I start my screening, I would say, again, actually the risk for a younger person developing a colon cancer is fairly high. Being aware of the symptoms of colon cancer or of of having a large polyp that could turn into a colon cancer is is worth knowing because, again, this would be preventable. If we can catch these cancers at a smaller size at an earlier stage, they tend to be curable. Hey, you mentioned uh, potentially some of the causes, and then you just said the symptoms. Are there some, some common symptoms that might indicate, hey, I should get checked out? Yeah, red flag symptoms for colon cancer includes rectal bleeding. So if you see stool mixed with blood during a bowel movement, if you see a lot of blood in the toilet or even just small streaks of blood, that could be a sign of colon cancer, an early sign, and maybe not even cancer. It could be a polyp. Again, that that could be a stage where things are, are totally curable and easily fixed just with an endoscopic procedure and not even needing a surgery. But blood and stool um, should not go together. It's, it's not uncommon for people to have hemorrhoids. That's a very common condition. Seeing a little bit of blood when you wipe, maybe it just means you have to have a little more stool softener, um, take a little bit of a fiber supplement. That's probably good for all of us. The other symptom I tell my patients to watch out for is, is that of change in their bowel habits. So if you notice that stools are becoming pencil thin or changing in caliber, if you notice that things just aren't quite the way they were you know, a few years ago, that may be another reason to get checked out see your primary care doctor, let them know about these things and see if they're concerned enough to have you do maybe even an early screening test like a colonoscopy. Well, Dr. Storm, I greatly appreciate the information and we will do our part in uh, raising awareness about colon cancer awareness this month. Hopefully we can uh, at least get some people to uh, set up an appointment. You know, it sounds like getting treatment early or a diagnosis early can be life-saving. That's right. Really, it, you know, it, it's, it's a test worth doing, and um, 
I, I can understand why people people hesitate, but it's it's um, one of the only one of the only cancers that can be prevented by you know having a screening exam and being a you know one of the most common cancers. It's the number third cause of cancer death in America. That's Dr. Andrew Storm from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester on Minnesota Matters. Thanks, Brent. More Minnesota Matters right after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. Caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's disease comes with many challenges. MNN contributor Blois Olson has more. This week's caregiver conversation is with Dustin Lee. He's the CEO of Prairie Senior Cottages, and they provide Alzheimer's and memory care across rural Minnesota. Dustin shares just how exhausted his caregivers are throughout the pandemic. Here's that conversation. And talk about what your role is and where you work. Yeah, I lead an organization called Prairie Senior Cottages. We are a dementia care provider serving rural Minnesota. And we have seven different locations. What, what communities are your locations in? Uh, Isanti, Wilmer, Hutchinson, Elbert Lee, New Richland, and New Ulm. And how do you kind of characterize the state of the industry or the state of your business in this environment uh, in, over the last three years? Sure. Um, our... Our heroic caregivers are beyond exhausted, and they need um, they need the government to step up and adequately fund long-term care so that way they can live what they deserve, which is a, a livable wage and a lifestyle where they're not struggling to um, buy eggs or put gas in the in the gas tank. And talk about the qualities and values of the caregivers that do work there and the people who are attracted to this profession. Well, our best caregivers are those that are empathetic, uh, caring, kind, and compassionate. And um, the fact is, so many of them struggle outside of work. And when they come to work every day and they, they spread joy and love with smiles and kindness and touch, it's, they're, 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 beyond, they're, they're beyond committed. And especially through this collective trauma that everybody has gone through, they, um, they're, they're truly heroes. And talk about what it means to have a community in the, or a, a community in these cities and areas that serve the community. Why, why is it important to have a facility in these communities? Sure. Um, this is what I like to say. Dementia is very expensive, and if you live long enough and develop dementia, it's going to be very expensive. Uh, half of the people who we serve. Um, well, all the people that we serve are elderly, they suffer from memory loss, and half of them are poor. I can't think of three things that, are, um, that nobody wants, um, which is to be elderly, suffering from dementia, and be poor. Um, as a result, in the communities that we serve, um, uh, we have chosen to serve um, exactly what the community represents as far as their economics. And that, what that means is half the people who move into our buildings are poor and um, they're reliant on the taxpayer and the government to provide for their care. And so it's really important that we reflect the communities that we serve by serving the people who live in those communities. And, and is it important for those families to, to have their loved ones close? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. We've had some families that have um, um, moved into our location but the families were 90 to 120 miles away. And um, 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 eventually, if, they're, if the families are able, they then will move their loved one back to their community. But it's, it's traumatic having dementia, and it's traumatic placing a loved one 
who has dementia into the care of somebody else, but it's got to be even more traumatic not being able to see them on a daily basis and make sure that they're okay. You've brought up the government and the funding. Uh, the state has a surplus. What, what, what about that sub surplus do seniors need, and how would that money be spent if the investment is, is what it needs to be? Yeah, well, <clears throat> every provider has seen record increases in wage pressure, and every dollar that is going to be invested into uh, health care, into the elderly waiver program, will most likely go to the caregivers. And that's an investment in the communities because those caregivers will spend every single penny that they make, um, and it will go right back in. Um, you know, I've been around long enough that when the economy is doing well, um, we need to have tax refunds and then, or returns or rebates or whatever it may be. And then when the economy isn't going well, um, we, we look at cuts. There's no conscionable reason why the government right now should not be investing in health care workers, which will then be an investment into the people who are receiving the services. And as you think about those investments, um, what would they mean to the care you can provide or the services you could provide? Um, and are you limited in, in resources or staffing right now? Yeah, staffing has never been this um, difficult. It truly, it isn't difficult. It's, it's really a crisis. And um, um, money is a motivator, and it will make a difference in these people's lives. Um, um, it will allow them to be able to afford things that right now they're struggling to afford, like simple things like groceries. That was Boyce Olson visiting with Dustin Lee, President and CEO of Prairie Senior Cottages. More Minnesota Matters coming up. It's Thursday night and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in, say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings and another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Tasha Radel. The number of family caregivers across Minnesota continues to rise. Joining me today is AARP State Director Kathy McClear. Well, wanted to visit with you. I know that AARP is out with their valuing the invaluable report on family caregiving. And as we know, uh, in Minnesota, we have an aging population and uh, a lot of the caregiving is being turned over to family caregivers. Can you tell us a little bit uh, about this report and your push uh, there within your organization? Sure. Well, in Minnesota, we have well over half a million individuals, family caregivers, so 530,000 family caregivers who are provi providing that uh, care and support for older parents, maybe spouses, partners, or friends 
who really have some sort of a chronic or disabling uh, illness or a serious health condition. And those unpaid caregivers, uh, unpaid, are really the backbone of our long-term care delivery system here in the state. And they provide roughly 500 million hours of care worth a staggering $10 billion. And, you know, I know uh, within our um, state legislature, there's really been a push um, for the Paid Family and Medical Leave Act. And on the flip side of that, in Congress, I know Senator Tina Smith and Klobuchar have really been, you know, pushing uh, for funding. Can you tell us a little bit about your push here in Minnesota? Sure. Well, as you know, when those folks are providing that care unpaid, there's really a significant cost to that caregiving. So um, folks who... uh, you know, maybe don't have an opportunity to take time off work, you know, they're missing opportunities at work, they're missing uh, financial, or they're sacrificing their financial health, they might have to miss a paycheck, they might be, you know, missing promotions or raises, um, they put their health and their own well-being uh, at, at risk. Um, so care, family caregivers really do bear it all. Um, we know that 61% of caregivers were working either full-time or part-time, and In Minnesota, only 13% of workers have access to paid family and medical leave that allows them to take that time off to care for a loved one. Um, And so that's really why AARP Minnesota is calling on lawmakers to pass paid family and medical leave uh, so that those individuals could take up to 12 weeks of paid leave to care for that loved one. And I know to raise awareness about there, uh, you folks are going to be holding a lobbying day later this month at the Capitol. Is that correct? Sure. Uh, You know, it's so important to be visible about this issue and show lawmakers that this is something that Minnesotans really care about. And so we're asking our members uh, to join us at the state capitol March 21st for our lobby day. Um, We'll have a rally in the rotunda. We'll ask folks to go out and talk with their lawmakers, uh, have that conversation, and ask them to pass paid family medical leave. Thanks again to my guest, AARP State Director Kathy McClare. It was announced this week that Minnesota exports reached a record high in 2022. Joining me now is Deed Senior Economic Analyst to my Hokim. The state had a great year. The exporters uh, um, were able to increase exports uh, by 16% of $27 billion. And even in 2021, we had a great year rebounding from the pandemic. So it was good to see that that growth that export growth was sustained. And um, certainly leading the way in terms of country markets, we're looking at North America, where exports to North America were up 30%, primarily led by Canada, but certainly other growth markets were in Europe and Central and South America and the Middle East. Well, our primary exported categories, these are broad categories, uh, are medical devices and optical devices, they're in one product category, as well as machinery and electrical equipment. And each of these categories have over $3 billion worth of export. And then, you know, obviously, I'm sure exports uh, is is a major contributor to uh, the, the state's economy, you know, not only with revenue, but supporting jobs. Do we know about how many jobs this industry uh, supports? According to the latest estimates, which are from 2021, uh, this is um, an estimate by the International Trade Administration, by the Census Bureau in the U.S. Department of Commerce. They estimated that nearly 118,000 jobs in Minnesota are supported by exports of goods. And these jobs include direct jobs, 
in manufacturing, as well as other related jobs, for example, in logistics, transportation, and marketing. That was Deed Senior Economic Analyst to my Ho Kim. Well, time is up. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Minnesota Matters. Be sure to join us again next week on this MNN affiliate station, same time, same place. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, I'm Tasha Radal.